You're listening to The Exchange on Siouxland Public Media. I'm Mary Hartnett. Today in the program, we hear from local lawmakers at a League of Women Voters Forum held Saturday morning at the Sioux City Public Museum. We also talk with a supporter of a bill that would help small grocers stay afloat in Iowa. But first, a roundup of the latest headlines. State senators gave initial approval Monday to a bill that would bring back the death penalty in Iowa for first-degree murder cases where a person intentionally murders a police officer or prison employee. The death penalty was abolished in Iowa in 1965. Governor Kim Reynolds' bill to strengthen enforcement of limits on foreign ownership of farmland advanced with bipartisan support in the Iowa Senate this week. Iowa law already prohibits foreign investors from buying more than 320 acres of land. The bill would require foreign landowners to provide more information to state officials and strengthen penalties for violations. Smuggling people would be a new crime in Iowa under a bill advanced by House Republicans. The bill would also require the use of a federal system to verify immigration status of non-citizens enrolling in public assistance. Woodbury County Supervisor Keith Raddick has entered the race for Woodbury County Auditor, Recorder, and Commissioner of Elections. Raddick is the third person to announce a run for the position after current Auditor Pat Gill and Deputy Auditor Michelle Scaff. Raddick currently serves as the District 1 Supervisor with his term set to expire this year. He's running as a Republican, and that means he'll face Scaff in a primary. A bill to overhaul the state's area education agencies was one of the main topics of discussion at a legislative forum held Saturday morning at the Sioux City Public Museum. Under Governor Kim Reynolds' plan for the state AEAs, money would go to K-12 public school districts instead of the nine agencies. Sioux City District 2 Republican Representative and former teacher Bob Henderson said the goal of the bill to give more and better help to students in special education plans is a good one. The intent of this bill is to provide better and better measurable support for our special needs students. 14th District Republican Jacob Bossman said he was encouraged with the speed by which the governor offered an amendment, making significant changes to the bill after hearing from constituents. You know, crafting an amendment to this so soon, I think, shows that that process is working, that she is hearing from Iowans, that we're hearing from Iowans. Um, so I think there's an intent uh, to provide uh, you know, a little more oversight of the funds, to uh, give some more flexibility to the local school districts to direct where those funds are going. I- Sioux City 1st District Democratic Representative J.D. Scholten says he has received more than 800 emails from people who are opposed to the bill. And he's also heard from Chris Cox, who leads the Northwest Area Education Agency in Sioux City. The governor, had, in their condition of the state, said we should have an overall or a general review. I think the governor should be talking to AEAs and what we should do to improve the situation. Since the bill's release, Governor Reynolds has amended the plan, saying it would allow AEAs to continue providing general education services as long as the state approves. Jolton says the recent amendment to the bill is a slight improvement, but it would still hurt Iowans. Up to 1,000 people getting fired. We're talking about students being impacted. We're talking about parents being impacted on this. 
Lawmakers at the League of Women Voters Forum also talked about the value of Iowa's education savings account program. The law passed last year provides funds for students to leave public schools and take those funds with them to private schools. Some call it a voucher law. Ken Carlson says that's not the correct term for what he sees as a helpful program. It's not a voucher. we got to get off of that word. I have had several superintendents say to me, this has been good for us because it's forcing us to examine what we have and have not been doing in our schools to make it good for everybody. Former teacher and Representative Bob Henderson echoed Carlson's remarks, repeating some comments he recently heard from a local Board of Education member. He said almost immediately when that bill was um, passed, their Board of Education entered into uh, discussions about how to improve uh, school discipline, what to do. And they put into effect things that they believe already has really improved their schools and because it, it is a matter of competition. However, Representative J.D. Shulton pointed out the program costs more than the state can afford, but it's difficult to know just how much because there's no accounting system for ESA program funds. This is the most fiscally irresponsible bill ever to pass in the state of Iowa that I feel. It's going to be on pace to be 400% over budget. We've added uh, this earlier this month. I don't know how it came out, but... Um, uh, eight charter schools to uh, decide to come in this or uh, applied at the Department of Education. Seven of those are out of state. So if you look at success as giving taxpayer money to private institutions that are out of state, this bill did pretty well, I guess, on that end. District 7 Republican State Senator Kevin Alons went back to the original question posted by an audience member about the ESA program. How has it gone so far? And so I think the projection was like 10,000 scholarships would be awarded or would be applied for and would be uh, would be available or used, I guess. And I think the number where it turned out it was higher than that. So it did show that there certainly is interest and parents were, were wanting to participate in the, in the, in the program. So... I think going back to the competitive nature of it and basically giving people choice and then making the system accountable, I would say that is underway. And I think one year in, it's, it's going to take some time to fully assess, I guess, what effect that's had and how it improves all schools. But that's, that's what I would anticipate. Also at the legislative forum, local lawmakers talked about a bill that would remove legal protections for transgender Iowans under the Iowa Civil Rights Act. The bill would remove gender identity as a protected characteristic and add gender dysphoria under the disability category. The bill's sponsor says the legislature needs to address questions about what accommodations for transgender Iowans are required by law. Opponents of the bill say there are many transgender Iowans who wouldn't get diagnosed with gender dysphoria and the bill would leave them without legal protections. However, Senator Alon said he supported the bill, adding it could be needed in a world where gender has become disconnected from biology. Where we've gone to is, now somebody brought as part of this discussion a chart that shows a flowchart of, I don't know, 100 plus uh, genders. I, I find that to be an unworkable and uh, a, a system that just, I don't see how that can stand. It's, gonna be, it's destructive to society. So I think this topic really does need to be revisited. And again, I'm going to have to read the bill, but uh, on concept, I would be in support. Representative J.D. Shulton disagreed with Elon, saying he was disappointed in the amount of energy spent on the bill and its focus as well. Especially when it comes to kids, their genitalia, that's at the legislative session, especially uh, when it comes to 
to stuff like this where we're taking away rights uh, from people. I think that's the wrong dis uh, direction we're having in the state of Iowa. Speaking about the bill, Representative Jacob Bossman said he was very hesitant to make any changes to Iowa's civil rights code. You know, I know that this is a touchy subject, but I think that it's been working well for the last 17 years. Um, and so obviously I think when we're talking about changing the civil rights code, that's something that we need to take a lot of time and, and serious thought uh, before uh, changing that. But Representative Bob Henderson took a different tack when analyzing the bill. He focused on the value of giving transgender people disability rights. The civil rights law that protects different things ought to be protecting, um, how would I say, non-decision-making situations. Decision-making situations, and one is, that's one thing, but other kinds of disabilities should be considered into a category. Otherwise, the civil rights bill the civil rights laws can get just very, very cumbersome. So I think that's, that, that, that would be a, a main reason that I'd be in favor of it. Republican Representative Ken Carlson said he was against changing the civil rights law and said it needs to be more and not less inclusive. But I am of a mind and have been somewhat leery of this from day one. Uh, I think we're up to 15 or 16 different groups of people now that we cannot discriminate against. I forget how big the number is. But I am of a mind we need to get rid of all of them and, you, and write it simply as you cannot discriminate against a human being. And then you don't have to worry about who belongs on it, who does not belong on it. Legislators did find a common concern when discussing the proposed carbon capture pipeline that would run across Iowa and other Midwestern states. The issue of eminent domain has yet to be decided by the Iowa Utilities Board. Summit says it's partnering with POET and its 12 facilities in Iowa and five in South Dakota to capture, transport, and store nearly 5 million metric tons of carbon dioxide each year. The announcement comes as Summit awaits a decision by the Iowa Utilities Board on a permit for a proposed 688-mile carbon pipeline. The Sierra Club has said the IUB needs to halt its deliberations and assess the implications of this new partnership between Summit and poet. Democratic Representative J.D. Shelton echoed many of the concerns of the Republican lawmakers on the panel, and he added that there really could be local solutions to deal with CO2 sequestration that we really have not looked into. I think there is this narrative in the agriculture community that without this, the renewable fuel industry will go away, and I don't think that's the case. I mean, there's other options. There's low-carbon fuel standard. There's aviation fuel that we can all uh, talk about more. Uh, in my mind, when it comes to carbon sequestration, why it doesn't make sense to me to pump something, a, a uh, chemical that is poisonous, go through different lands in different places, uh, hundreds of miles away, if not thousands of miles away, when we can empower our farmers to sequester the, the, on their land and, and let's go to the source of it rather than piping it and making all these things that may be obsolete and 15, 20 years. Representative Ken Carlson chimed in on the eminent domain issue with the pipeline. Last year, the Iowa House of Representatives passed a bill that would ban the use of eminent domain for carbon capture pipelines unless 90% of the route is first acquired through voluntary land sales. We have not specifically talked about pipelines yet. We're kind of waiting. I'm at least waiting to see what the IUB is going to do. Supposedly, all of the presentations to them are done, and they're going to be making a decision 
sometime. Nobody seems to know when. But I come down on uh, the following. I was one of those who voted against the bill uh, with regard to the first one that came out and because uh, it had 90% protection on eminent domain. For me, it's 100%. Uh, or nothing at all, because I believe above all, no matter what it is, property rights are preeminent in our country. It's a part of our freedom to have property rights, and we are at this point misusing terribly eminent domain. Representative Jacob Bossman said he was not necessarily opposed to the carbon capture pipeline, but he has a big issue with using eminent domain to complete the project. I think that there's a good, there's a differentiation there between being opposed to the project and supporting the project and being opposed to the use of eminent domain for the project or supporting the use of eminent domain. So um, I don't think it's necessarily the role of the state legislature to say whether this is, uh, you know, a valid business model or something that should happen or not. But I do think that we need to reform eminent domain and redefine what is a public good, what entities can apply for eminent domain, you know, what sort of products and when they can use eminent domain. And I don't think that this is a good use of eminent domain. And that's why I supported the 90% threshold. And it passed out of the House, and it, like a lot of other proposals, have been stalled in the Senate. Lawmakers at the forum also discussed tax issues, funding of emergency services, and also support for disability rights. Republican State Senator Kevin Alans and Republican State Representatives Bob Henderson of Sioux City, Ken Carlson of Ottawa, and Jacob Bossman of Sioux City attended the event, as well as Democratic State Representative J.D. Schulten of Sioux City. I caught up with J.D. Schulten after the forum, and he elaborated a little bit on several of the issues at the forum, one of which was the issue of reconfiguring AEAs, which he said is not a popular option for most Iowans. Actually, this is quoting a Republican colleague of mine. He said, at least with vouchers, we had 5% in favor of it. Here we have 0% in favor. And that just shows you how uh, uh, dis. I guess, engaged with the Iowa voters at how, what this bill is. And um, I think the governor is, is completely wrong on this. And, and just what Dr. Cox uh, uh, mentioned about, he's the chief of the administrator at the Northwest AEA. He goes, let's have that comprehensive review that she talked about. We all are in agreement. Maybe we should do that instead of just jam this ridiculous, radical uh, bill. Um, uh, and so that, it just, it's freaked everybody out the civil rights and transgender, uh, trying to remove this from the, the civil rights law in Iowa. I was just trying to figure out where this came from and why all of a sudden it was an important thing to do. Those types of bills are so frustrating because it's culture war issue bills that they're trying to legislate. And, you know, we have um, the legislative uh, uh, establishment has, has already said that this is a, a civil right. And so let's not go back. Uh, we, we need to be moving forward on some of these issues. And it's just, to me, it's so sad because it's punch down uh, politics. It, it's not, it, it's hurtful, it's divisive, and it's, it's not bringing this country together, not bringing the state together. And it's very frustrating that we have to play whack-a-mole with a lot of these bills. I know you were talking about a bill recently that kind of protect agricultural land in Iowa. And there's kind of a connected thing with wanting to pass this mega sites bill to bring more large and some international companies to expand the number of acres, like from 360 or 320 to 1,000. These are the kind of bills that concern a lot of people in agricultural areas, but other people say, we need jobs, you know, why don't we do this? Well, I think ultimately that's the governor's big conundrum is she wants both bills and they they both are 
going to be contradictory near each other. So who, who knows what's going to happen over there? Uh, I do know that the governor's bill on uh, strengthening our, for, our ban on foreign uh, land ownership is in the Senate at this point. I think it's going to get a subcommittee this week. Uh, but So I'm very much in, in tune with what's happening there. Uh, I was brought out to Farm Aid, uh, the conference before the music uh, venue, and I also got to see the uh, Willie Nelson sing, so that was cool. But uh, um, that conference, I was talking to several folks in Indiana, and they passed this bill before, and they said that they're just north of where we were at, there was a Korean company that actually pretty much imports the majority of their workers from Korea and rotate them through, and they ship, they take the resources and ship it back to Korea with little um, uh, little advantage for the local community in, in the state of Indiana. And so that's something that I don't think uh, is, is what we should be thriving for. What I really want is, you know, when we talk about in, in innovation and bringing up the economy, we should be investing in Iowans and Iowa businesses. And that's the way to have strong uh, uh, economics at, at the state level. And, and so I'm more interested in that than, than uh, the, the mega site bill. And protecting our farmlands is at the heart of uh, kind of why I got into politics as well, making sure that we pass it on to the next generation in a healthy way. CO2 pipelines, a lot of concern, bipartisan concern about that. What do you expect will happen with that uh, in this session? So I don't think the legislation is going to have much of a say. It's all up to the, I think it's up to two people. It's, well, two groups. It's the utilities board is the one. And the governor picks that. And basically, if the governor gives it a thumbs up, it's the pipes are going in. If the governor gives it a thumbs down, it's not going in. That's what I feel. Um, that's we, we thought that last year um, in the Senate and the governor has not weighed in on this w with a bill that passed the House. Um, I just it, it is to me, I mean, overwhelming. There's a lot of passion to not put those pipelines in. And I think we should respect the will of the people um, on this issue. I just thought it was interesting. You talked about farmers um, dealing with this locally. Yeah. I haven't heard a lot of talk about that. That seems to be a sensible idea. What I view that we should do when we talk about carbon sequestration is investing in farmers that do it at their level. That's, that's right at the point. Why create a pipeline, put billions of dollars into this liquid that goes through our lands and past rivers and in... Uh, our aquifers and, and uh, potential for, for damage and all that stuff when we can just invest in farmers. And that's that to me is a logical voice. But the problem is the there's corporations that have a lot of interest in all this money that would come with these pipelines. And that's a big frustration of mine is like there's an obvious solution, but it would be empowering farmers. And these corporations have got to get their hands on that money. That was Sioux City Democratic Representative J.D. Shulton talking about several issues affecting Iowans that will be up for votes in the Iowa legislature this session. Another bill that is likely to come up for discussion would provide resources to small grocery store owners fighting to keep their stores open amidst economic and workforce challenges and competition from big box retailers. The Grocer Reinvestment Fund would establish a grant and loan program to help locally owned grocery stores selling perishable foods. Since Cynthia Farmer is a policy associate with the Center for Rural Affairs. She explains how the program would work. And at the center, we also work a lot with the farmers in a lot of the rural communities across the state. And so we wanted to be able to support them in a way that they can get their local produce and food items into those grocery store shelves as well. And so 
a lot of the folks who are locally owned and independent grocery stores across the state do rely on some of the local producers around to kind of keep their grocery store afloat and even those purchasing the products too. So that's kind of where this idea stemmed from. And then creating a grant program similar to what happened a couple of years back now with the butchery bill or the butchery innovation bill is what we've kind of based this idea off of for a grant program to assist those grocery stores. Can you explain a little bit how the measure would work? The language in the bill, it gives authority to the Economic Development Authority here in Iowa to uh, utilize that appropriation. And so the application process would include uh, those grocery stores applying for grant funding, and then their eligibility uh, would be based off of a few different items. One specifically looking at uh, the, the filing of the grocery store, um, and there's a specific definition to include the grocery store I guess to like define what a grocery store is across the state. So that'd be a supermarket or, um, you know, that primarily engages with the the sale of food and, and fresh food products for folks to consume. And looking at that eligibility, then we would also look at the folks who employ 25 or fewer individuals at each location. And then uh, hopefully with the dollars allocated, they would be able to either create new jobs for some of their local residents or even increase their compensation for their existing employees. And so those are the eligibility requirements. And then I also like to point out that what this dollar dollars could go to is quite a wide range of things. Um, anything from expanding on to their business location if they needed capital improvements to help um, invest in maybe a freezer unit or a refrigerator or looking at the option to increase their storage capacity or even on their shelves. So some of that sort of thing, maybe looking at energy efficiency measures to make their business model work better. Uh, furthermore, they could look at different professional services like hiring an accountant or even taking their business online for an e-commerce option workforce training. There's quite a few options <laughs> for what those dollars could go towards. That was Cynthia Farmer with the Center for Rural Affairs talking about the Grocer Reinvestment Fund. It would establish a grant and loan program to help locally owned grocery stores sell perishable foods and invest in their businesses. The bill is before the legislature this session. Support for The Exchange comes from Gregory Giles, investment advisor representative with Legacy Financial, LLC in Sioux City, serving the financial planning and investment needs of clients since 2004. Information about Legacy Financial and Greg Giles is available at LegacyFinancialLLC.com. Financial planning and advisory services offered through RDA Financial Network. The terrible blizzard of 1888, known as the Children's Blizzard, killed hundreds of folks on the plates. But the data suggests that only one group was particularly vulnerable. Jim Scott takes us back to that cold and snowy time. Living in winter. In 1888, what habitation existed for homesteaders was newly thrown together and, in its very own way, primitive. The treeless plains meant people used what was amply available and cheap, sod. No end to it. 
whether the newcomers may do in a sadi or a lean-to or a cave or, or even a newly thrown up grave dwelling. It didn't offer much protection from the great blizzard of 1888. And now hold on, you're saying. The insulation in a sadi couldn't have been better. Walls a foot thick kept folks balmy in January and refreshed in August, right? Well, maybe. But winter gales could pull a chorus of tea kettles from Asadi's walls. With some luck, you could keep the zero temps at bay, but keeping the wind outside was another story altogether. In schools and homes, drifts came in and lay over the floor like sleeping pets. Ice and snow spread over frosted windows. If some doubting Thomas wanted to see what was going on outside and cracked open the door, the barrage thus welcomed made closing that door a two or three person job. What Sulan's native populations thought of all those white folks building sadis on flat treeless open prairie isn't recorded, but they might have chuckled. Wacky newcomers didn't know any better. Come winter, the Winnebago's found their way to the trees along the Missouri, and for good reason. Wood, lots of it for fuel, but also for fortification from the howling winds up on the flatland. In late November, most western Sioux bands headed off to the Black Hills for nature's own protection. With temps far lower than anyone could handle, life was simply easier in the nest created by the wooded hills of the Paha Sapa. Hard as it may be to believe, teepees created cozy shelters, some of them big enough to hold as many as four fires. Sometimes bark cabins were erected around the teepees and created more shelter and even better insulation. Among the Santee, those who remembered the great blizzard couldn't recall any deaths, with the exception of a half dozen of their horses that perished beneath, hard as it may be to believe, 20-foot drifts that didn't melt away until mid-May. It's hard to imagine that some of our First Nations folks didn't shake their heads and giggle a little at what seemed the madness of making a go of winter up on that flat land. It might have been helpful for all those immigrant newcomers, many of them squatters, to sit quietly and observe the ways of native people who lived through the trials and tribulations of many a Siouxland winter. But then, those Indians were savages, weren't they? Mountain men decked out in leather and skins and raccoon hats were here long before throngs of homesteaders set claims. But then all those newbies thought shaggy and old trappers like Hugh Glass walking along our own old river trail looked and even acted like engines. In some cases, there seemed little difference. Whatever the story and whatever the reasons, it seems clear that native people of the region, Omaha, Winnebago, Santee, Yankton, somehow made it through the great blizzard without the horrors so many white folks suffered.
Support for Small Wonders on Siouxland Public Media comes from the Daniels Osborne Law Firm in the Ho-Chunk Center in downtown Sioux City, serving the needs of clients in real estate transactions, business formation and guidance, and personal estate planning. More information is available on Facebook or at danielsosborne.com. That's it for this edition of The Exchange. Thanks to Steve Smith and Mark Munger. I'm Mary Hartnett. We'll see you next time.